Hello, welcome to New Wave Coffee, a podcast by Bellwether Coffee. Here at Bellwether, we believe you can create a better industry, one that is more inclusive and sustainable. And we think that you can have a cafe that's more profitable as well. In this six episode series, we're gonna take you on an audio journey to show you how you can think outside the box around topics like... The real situation for coffee farmers, the challenges they face, what they're doing about it, and what cafe owners can do about it too. We're also gonna talk about the role of technology and the future of coffee. And we're gonna talk about how to make your cafe business model more resilient against all the surprises the world is going to throw at you. I'm Liz Pichot. I'm the product marketing manager here at Bellwether. I started my career as a barista, like most people, and then I became a roaster. I own my own cafe. I was a green coffee importer, and then I finally joined Bellwether to help increase equity for coffee farmers and also help business owners here in the States realize their vision for their cafes. I'm Arno Holshue. I'm the chief coffee officer here at Bellwether. I all started out as a barista some 20 years ago, and I've stuck with the industry because I love the people in the industry. I love the product, I love the way it tastes, I love caffeine, and also because I've seen this industry be a force for good in people's lives, and I wanna increase the ability of coffee to do good. So today we're gonna talk about climate change. We know it's a complicated topic, but we're going to try and provide some context and we're gonna show where carbon has had such a devastating impact in the coffee supply chain and why we have to care about it because it is an existential threat for the future of coffee. Then after that, we're gonna take a look at what the role of the coffee shop owner is in terms of addressing climate change. What can they do to lower the carbon footprint in their cafe? Uh, and what questions should they be asking themselves before they start? And to cap things off, we're gonna present some findings from a report that we commissioned here at Bellwether that shows where carbon is hidden in the roasting process and elsewhere in the coffee supply chain. Okay, so to start things off, I wanna introduce you to a farmer that you also know, um, who I spoke to, Marianella. Yes, she, uh, I know Marianella. We, I buy coffee from her regularly. My name is Marianella Baez Jost and I am from Costa Rica. I'm a coffee producer, and the name of my farm is Café Con Amor. I am also the founder of Farmers Project of Specialty Coffee. It's a small group of producers who work together as a team to accomplish a real direct trade with great roasters in United States and Canada. Can you tell me the story of getting involved in your coffee farm and starting to sell coffee into the U.S.? Well, I was born and raised in Costa Rica, never got involved into coffee until uh, about seven years ago when my husband and I decided to do something out of the box and pretty much embark on a dream that we had to own a coffee farm. And we thought, oh, what a wonderful idea. We can grow coffee and we can sell it in the United States. And so that's how naive we were when we got into it. <laughs> it was a wonderful, romantic dream. So in 2013, Marianella and her partner buy a farm. It's about five hectares, which is uh, right around 12 acres. Okay. And then the way she describes the location of her farm, it really sounds like a dream coming true for them. So the ride to the farm is very beautiful. You start in the San Jose Valley, go northwest to Naranjo in a little town of Cañuelas. 
is lined up with flowers called hortensias. They're uh, really beautiful, bright color flowers. And as we approach our farm, there are a lot of them on both sides of the road. And there is a spot that is unbelievable because from that spot high in the mountain, you can see the ocean. You can see the Gulf of Nicoya and you are in the middle of coffee lands. That is so idyllic sounding. That is like, I am very scared about what might happen next, but it sounds so wonderful, I have to say. Well, as you can imagine, um, also being in the tropical belt, she has to worry quite a bit about the weather. So we talked about it. From the moment we started to farm, the conversation with other farmers is definitely centered on weather and how people would say, I used to be able to harvest 60, 70 fanegas is a measurement of coffee beans. And now everybody wishes for 30, 35 to be a good average. That's that's half of the yield that people are actually aiming towards. That's how much it has affected. Wow. Yeah. So as you might suspect, climate change is having a really big impact on the land there. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say for all of our friends out there in radio land, coffee as a crop is very, very susceptible to specific weather events, specifically rains. And so everywhere in the coffee belt, uh, communities have grown up with the sort of cultural tradition of when to plant, when to harvest. And it's all based around the seasonality of a rainy season, usually. So it is a very sensitive crop in this way. So, so what's it like for the farmers on the ground today that are experiencing this reality? Well, Marianella had a lot to say about that. Last week when I was with Abel. Abel is the local guy who she hired to help manage the farm. He was very worried about not enough rain, nothing, no rain. And it's like the, the plants are struggling. They need rain before the flowering. And I was like, yeah, we just have to hope and pray that we get the water because we don't have irrigation. So... Thankfully, last week it started, there was like, it's raining, yay! You know, it's like, it's, it's really, you almost want to do those rain dances too. And I do not know of a farmer that doesn't talk about climate change. Personally, I don't. It's, it's, it's an everyday topic. Have you seen in those nearby farmers who have been affected by climate change, what's happened? Has anyone given up? Are they changing their models? Are they reconsidering coffee farming as a viable economy? Yes, to all of the above. Most small farmers are always reconsidering coffee farming because it's just not feasible anymore. And then people ask me, so why do they stay? And why don't they do different crops or just do a combination of crops and try to figure out a a better livelihood? Well, first, the landscape, most of the specialty coffee farms, you're in mountains and high altitudes. And it is a perfect landscape and soil for coffee. And yes, maybe you could grow potatoes or you could grow tomatoes or you could grow other vegetables. But logistically, how did you get that out to a market if you don't have a truck? You are hours away from a market. That's one thing. There's not really a choice to to start growing something else, to just change your model to a different type of agriculture. So most people are open to selling for real estate purposes, for developing purposes. 
the new generation is very connected. Everybody has a smartphone and know what the internet is, YouTube and everything else. And they don't want to follow the steps of their parents. They see the hardship their parents have had their whole life. So for the new generation, they look at it like, hey, how fast can you sell so I can have some cash and go to the city and follow my dreams? Because I have no interest in being a farmer. And Liz, if we don't find a way to get a handle on the economic impacts of climate change for farmers, uh, this is going to impact our future as coffee shop owners. The two countries that are flourishing at this time as coffee producing countries are Brazil and Vietnam. Right. And I think that we when we look forward to a future where Marianella and people like Marianella can't farm coffee, you're looking forward to a future where your coffee is really only coming from two countries. Right. We'd lose a great deal of diversity. You'd lose a great deal of delicious coffee. Yeah, that's a great point. If you own a cafe and not only would you like to serve more than just Brazilian and Vietnamese coffees, but you also want to take ownership over your role in reducing the harm caused by climate change in the coffee supply chain, we need to know how to do that. You know, maybe you own a cafe or you hope to, and you want to know how can I have a tangible impact? How can I have agency in a situation that feels overwhelming? This is the question we should be asking ourselves, and to answer it, I spoke to this person. So my name is Kim Elena Ionescu, and I am the Chief Sustainability and Knowledge Development Officer for the Specialty Coffee Association. Arno, will you explain what the SCA is? It's our trade group. They do education, they do advocacy. Yeah, exactly. So, in order to get oriented in this complicated situation, I asked Kim about, first of all, can we identify where carbon is mostly found in the coffee chain. In, say, a cup of black coffee served at a cafe, where does most of the carbon footprint from that cup come from? It's likely that the largest portion of the footprint, you know, it's going to be in the coffee shop itself to heat the water, to brew the coffee, to keep the machines running, sometimes 24-7, even when the shop is closed. But it's really that uh, that brewing portion, not so much the transportation or the farming or the even the roasting of coffee that contributes the most. So not to put too fine a point on it, but to tie it back to Marianella and coffee farmers, you know, coffee shops are actually the ones who have most of the responsibility for the carbon footprint of a cup of coffee and farmers are the ones who are bearing the burden of dealing with the effects of that in the supply chain. You know, Liz, though, I want to kind of reframe that because that means that cafe owners are the ones that have the power to change the carbon content of a cup of coffee, not just the responsibility. The two go hand in hand. Absolutely. Now we know through research that A cup of black coffee gets most of its carbon footprint from water. A latte gets most of it from milk. So that's pretty clear. If you're a cafe owner, the first thing you should do is help your customers find a way away from dairy. Yeah. So when I had my cafe, uh, in order to help folks switch away from dairy, what we did was we made our own cashew milk that we positioned as our house milk. So when someone ordered a milk-based drink, we would just let them know our house milk is cashew, but we also have soy, almond, hemp, and regular dairy, if you prefer. And just positioning an alternative milk as the house milk, I would say 90% of people said, sure, I'll try it. I would also just say, don't charge extra for plant-based milks. It's really simple. 
If you charge 75 cents extra for oat milk, people won't do it. Yeah, we actually charged extra for dairy. I knew you did without you even saying that, Liz. <laughs> and Liz, another thing that I wanna mention is this. The second thing is to be really, really aware of how you're heating water to brew coffee. So you may have been told to keep your espresso machine on at all times. Um, that's an old piece of advice that technicians give, but it's far more efficient if you turn it off at the end of your shift. Uh, at the same time, if you're buying a new espresso machine, they're very different in how efficient they are. So make sure that you make it clear that you're looking for one that saves energy. Some manufacturers have insulated their boilers or done other really interesting things to make their machines more efficient. That's a great point, Arno. But also, Kimelina really cautions us against getting distracted by too many variables that the cafe owner may feel empowered to do something about, but actually aren't addressing the issue. So let's talk about those. I roll my eyes at disposable cups sometimes because it feels like such a red herring, you know, that we have this fervor over paper cups in the face of the magnitude of the challenges, the threats that we face, that there's so much time and energy given to paper cups because that's something that consumers see. Yeah, I totally agree with her statement here. I think that cups the cups and straws. Cups and straws. Yeah, the only problem I have with paper cups is that they don't they don't feel as nice in my hand. <laughs> is that is that actually where carbon lives, Liz? No. At least not according to research. And it is not addressing the issue. And by focusing on disposable cups and, you know, corn-based straws, we are potentially taking energy away from solving the actual issue, which is in our power to solve if we apply our energy there instead. You know, and Liz. Um, these cups are usually made out of glass or plastic, both of which are materials that take a lot of energy to melt so you can form them into your reusable cup. And many of them are also double-walled stainless steel with a vacuum insulating layer. That's a pretty advanced manufacturing technology, and so it too takes a lot of energy to be able to make that cup. And all of that emits a lot of carbon relative to what happens when you make a paper cup. And so because of that, it takes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uses with these reusable cups before you will have saved any carbon over using disposable cups the whole time. So yeah, you could focus on reducing carbon in the production of coffee and the drinking of coffee. That's great, do that. And then also, Kim has this point that even the way you design your space has meaning for your carbon footprint. How people have to travel to your cafe, how products get to you before you serve them, like your coffee, like your pastries. So coffee shop owners should also be thinking about their space as an extension of their carbon footprint. And Kimelina has some questions that coffee shop owners can ask themselves to evaluate their spaces more holistically to assess for carbon reduction possibilities. There are decisions that you can make in the process of building a space. You know, is it possible to walk there or bike there? Or how are you providing for people who do choose to use zero emissions transportation methods to arrive at your space? Do you create incentives for behaviors that are better for the climate? If so, what are they? How do you tell people about them and generate excitement about that? What kind of choices are you making about the equipment that you purchase and how you, you know, heat and cool your space? Sure. You know, if you think about this question of providing a bike rack so that people are encouraged to bicycle to your space, right? The first time that somebody rides a bike instead of driving their car, it's not really that big of a deal. But as Depeche Mode so eloquently put it, everything counts in large amounts. So the 100th <laughs> time that that person has ridden their bike there, you've actually made a difference. 
So Arno, you mentioned earlier that this was a moment of empowerment, right? To take control of the carbon footprint of your cafe to benefit farmers and the planet. And on the face of it, while important, this also seems like a really big ask. Like if we've learned anything, it's that there's actually no simple, quick answer. The responsibility will take effort. There's no way around that. Um, But Kim's ultimate argument is that in doing that work, it's not just that we're reducing carbon, which can feel somewhat intangible, I think, to the individual cafe owner. But her point is that it also has big implications for community building around your cafe and throughout the coffee industry. Mm. But I do think that the decisions you make about how to source your coffee, the kind of retail environment that you build and the way that you engage with your staff and customers around it. You know, I think that in the case of some shops, of great shops, you're really building a community and you're connecting with your community. And so embracing that and seeing a message about climate change and adaptation and mitigation as part of the conversation that you want your community to have. I see that as probably more impactful as anything that consumer is going to read or see on the news or in a publication because it's personal, you know, and that personal trust is so, so valuable. So it is exhausting work and it is endless because It's climate change, but I think it is absolutely worthwhile because you really do have a voice that people, you know, care to hear and and want to trust. So, Arno, I really want to bring to your attention something I noticed when I was talking to Kim Elena, which is that she intentionally did not want to be too prescriptive for cafe owners. For example, she would say statements like this. Depending on, you know, what you do in coffee, your ability to affect change might be really different from someone else's. That is kind of vague, I will admit. (laughs) But I think that she might be pointing out that, again, you know, this is a complicated problem. So there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Exactly. So, you know, Kim Elena is declining to be prescriptive about what a cafe should or shouldn't do when it comes to their carbon footprint. And a big reason for that is because we just do not know enough yet as an industry what our carbon footprint is. Are there resources for cafe owners who want to understand their carbon impact a little better? Ooh, I wish there were more. I will just go ahead and say that I wish there were more. So Arno, at this point, we should really talk about some of the work we've been doing here at Bellwether to fill that void of information so that we can know more about where carbon is found in the coffee supply chain. And we actually commissioned a study to help us understand it. What we did in this space is we engaged a group called Boundless, and uh, they did a life cycle analysis of our product to understand its environmental impact. You know, it's pretty obvious when you look at a bellwether, it uses electricity instead of natural gas. And so it's not producing as much CO2 as a natural gas fired roaster. But we wanted to dig deeper and understand, uh, was it really that good? I mean, what if the electricity was being produced by a power plant that was burning natural gas, right? Like, did it really matter? Yeah. So for the podcast, I got in touch with Boundless to take us through some of the findings. Uh, I'm Fernanda Avila. I'm a senior research analyst at Boundless. Um, and I, I work assessing the environmental impacts of new companies with new and exciting technologies. And can you say a little more about what Boundless does? Yes, yeah, so we are an impact and research assessment firm. That means we are looking at everything that goes into making a product. 
This means raw materials, the transportation of those materials, energy, water, etc., and the impact that can have on the on the climate change, on waste, etc. So Arno, this assessment was huge and comprehensive, and we learned a lot of things. But for this episode, I just want to highlight three things that came up. The first is that traditional gas-powered roasters do have a surprisingly high carbon footprint. That is surprising. I mean, one thing about natural gas that's nice is that it burns rather cleanly, right? It just produces some CO2. So Fernanda did say that. Uh, natural gas, if you look at it next to coal, for example, it has half the GHG footprint of it when you transform that natural gas into electricity. GHG stands for greenhouse gas. And also it's uh, less pollutant when you talk about like particle matters also. That's like a third of the coal. So we like natural gas when it's replacing coal. So yes, Arno, you're right. Natural gas is good when it's replacing coal. However... The problem with natural gas is that it's basically methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas with a warming potential that's around uh, 30 times the warming potential of CO2. And also it's very light, so it leaks easily. So you are basically, when you're using natural gas, not only having emissions from combusting the gas, but you also have those methane leaks across the supply chain that are not really much, it could be like 8%, of the total gas. But when you think on on terms of emissions, that's a lot of extra warming in the atmosphere. Yeah, I'm thinking here was 8% of natural gas leaks and it's 30 times as damaging as CO2. That's a lot of damage from gas leaking. This was news to me, learning that such a significant percentage of the emissions of natural gas was from leaking, you know, like from actual, like, like the lightness of the gas seeping around gaskets was fascinating to me and also a little troubling. (laughs) Sure. Um, So now we want to know, how does natural gas compare to other ways of powering a roaster, such as electricity? Mm -hmm. Can you talk also a little bit about the carbon footprint of electricity versus natural gas? When you're using something that's based on electricity, it basically depends on where you are connecting your machine, in this case, the Devil Weather Roaster, or your electric car, for example. It's very different if you are connecting your uh, roaster in New York, where the energy grid is very clean, or if you are connecting it to California, when it's, where it's not dirty, but it uh, has a higher GHG footprint than the grid in New York. Okay, so it matters where you're plugging your device in. Yeah, Right. And surprising to me, New York is cleaner than California. I was surprised by that, too. We're very proud of our solar (laughs) here in California. (laughs) Um, So it does matter how clean your electricity grid is. Sure. Uh, And now let's try and present some hard numbers. So this is how the study worked. We wanted to know how do gas roasters compare to electric roasters in geographies where the energy grid is very clean versus those where the energy grid is very dirty. So in order to do the study... I imagine we had to pick a place with a very clean energy grid as a starting point. We did. We um, we tried to find a place that had a very, very low carbon energy infrastructure. And coincidentally, uh, the place we chose was Costa Rica. So Fernanda spoke to uh, running this experiment using Costa Rica as a model. Costa Rica has a very clean energy grid because they have a lot of hydropower. Roasting a kilogram of coffee will be like 1.17 kilograms of CO2e. But the weather case will be 0.21 kilograms. So, okay, in Costa Rica, say we're roasting a kilogram of coffee. 
If we roasted that kilo on a gas-powered roaster, the greenhouse gas footprint of that coffee would be about 1.17 kilograms of carbon. Now, stay with me. In this same geography, if we instead roasted that kilo of coffee on an electric roaster powered by Costa Rica's very clean energy grid, the carbon footprint of that coffee goes as low as 0.21 kilograms, which is a five-time reduction. So, put another way, roasting with electricity in Costa Rica is five times cleaner compared to natural gas. Right, right. So, clean energy means roasting with electricity five times less carbon intensive. Right. Okay, Liz, so if that's what it's like in Costa Rica, where they have a very, very low carbon energy grid, what would it be like someplace where their energy grid was primarily powered by fossil fuels? Sure. Well, we talked about that, too. So uh, we took the same comparison uh, and brought it to the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. The difference is less dramatic. And in the case of Texas, that goes from 1.29 in the case of gas to 0.98. So it's still lower by about 24%. So you're still saving, you know, a quarter of the footprint of that coffee, even in a place where your energy grid is very dirty, quote unquote. So let's let's say that I'm in Texas and 24%, that's well and good, but I want more. I want to do more to fight climate change. What could I do? You can look into solar panels. That's an excellent option if you can, if you have the space, if you have a, a nice rooftop. If you are considering, for example, using only solar power, that number will go down to 0.79. So in the case of solar panels, you can get your carbon reduction down to 39% versus 24%, which is also significant. Yeah, we're making progress here. Sure. So the final thing about traditional gas-powered roasters is that the element that actually accounts for most of the carbon footprint in the roasting process is the afterburner. Ah, It is ironic to me that this is where most of the carbon footprint comes from because it is essentially an emissions mitigation device for your roaster. It runs on gas. It's about the same size and BTUs of your roaster, meaning it has to get hot enough to incinerate the smoke coming off of your coffee roasting to manage the particles that are coming out of your roaster, right? So that we're not polluting the air around us. And in fact, afterburners are pretty energy intensive. They require a lot of natural gas. That also means more leakage and significantly impacts the carbon footprint of your coffee roaster. The roaster we consider had a what's called an afterburn, and that uses more natural gas than the roasting process itself. Do we know how much with and without an afterburner? It's like a third of the GHG footprint. Wow. Yeah, it's significant. You know, and and here in the United States, we're kind of in a catch-22 because a lot of the air quality regulations require that for a roaster above a certain size, usually a five-pound, you know, two-and-a-half-kilo roaster, you are required by law to have an afterburner. So you are required to essentially increase your greenhouse gas footprint of your roasting operation by 30%. That's very significant. So for every roaster above five pounds in the United States, there is a 30% increase in potential carbon output. You know, for people who have natural gas roasters, they're not all gonna give them up. Some people have sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into this. So there are some other technologies people have tried to deploy out there. Uh, There's something called a regenerative thermal oxidizer. Uh, There are some water-based scrubbers, you know, and, and really 
We applaud people who are trying to address it in any way they can. But there is one very clear path forward here, which would be to just electrify your roasting on the cleanest electrical grid you can get your hands on. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that we found with this Bellwether commissioned boundless report was the impact of uh, coffee bags and packaging on the carbon footprint of a pound of coffee. Imagine you run a cafe and you have a brew bar, right? You have uh, a V60 on the bar and coffee is waiting to be ground and brewed. Where are you storing that coffee? Is it in tins or is it in plastic coffee bags? Or say you have a wholesale operation, right? Do you package your five pound wholesale coffee in um, reusable buckets or tins or do you package it in single use five pound bags? I asked Fernanda about the impact of both of these options. This is very interesting because if you look at a five-pound bag, the GHG footprint is 0.49 kilograms of CO2e. And if you look at a tin can, that's 1.58. So it's a lot higher. But the difference is that you will throw the bag after one use, probably. And the can, if you use it even four times, you are already offsetting the impact of that bag. So it's... More carbon intensive to make a reusable tin or plastic container versus a disposable coffee bag, sure. But the impact is outpaced very quickly by the reusable nature of that tin or that other canister versus the disposable bag. Gotcha. So so actually, yeah, reusable tins are much better than uh, disposable plastic coffee bags. The final point in the report that I want to share with you is the fact that if you want to reduce your carbon footprint at the cafe level, you should try to get the straightest line from the port in which the coffee lands to your cafe. Any detour is adding unnecessary carbon to the transportation of that coffee. The straight line is always the, or most of the times, the shortest distance. So the fewer stops you have for your coffee, the better. Anything that can reduce the distance from the port to the coffee shop, that will be better. Oh, like if you shipped green coffee directly to a cafe and had it roasted. That is one example. <laughs> that's one example. And of course, that's the Bellwether model, everyone. So. <laughs> you know, Liz, I just want to share a final thought here. You know, I think that setting out to have like a carbon negative cafe would still be a pretty steep hill to climb. But people should understand that there is a lot that they can do, right? And that they can sort of wrestle this problem to the ground and really start to have a positive impact. It's, it's mostly about deciding to, I think. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Um, and I think now that, you know, to me, one of the bigger takeaways was the biggest generator of the footprint of a cup of coffee comes in the cafe setting mm -hmm. and the biggest people who are impacted by it are coffee producers. And mm -hmm. if we want this industry to continue and to thrive, we have to take responsibility in the cafe on behalf of the impact it's having on those farmers. Yeah, I think I want people out there to just, again, realize their power. The coffee industry is inherently a can-do bunch of people, okay? We are all about solving problems in this industry, and we're all about waking up in the morning and making a better day and a better life for our customers and ourselves. That's something that's very wonderful about this industry. And we shouldn't think of climate change as some brick wall that we run into and we can't do anything about, because it's just not the case. Sure. There's a lot that we can do, and we're sort of the industry that could really show the way 
for other industries here. We're the ones who care. This podcast was produced by James Harper of Filter Productions. Music by Eli Nelson. Just to remind you, Bellwether makes the world's first zero emissions commercial coffee roaster that lets cafes roast for themselves. We've put links to all the interviewee social media in the show notes and links to articles we've written at Bellwether if you want to go deeper on anything we discussed today. And wherever you are in the industry, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us connect at bellwethercoffee.com or online at bellwethercoffee.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends who love coffee and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. In our next episode, we're going to explore how innovative business models can make you more resilient. And to be able to open essentially three cafes during COVID sounds insane, but we've done it and we've been very successful at each one. Learn how nurturing diverse revenue streams can lead to financial freedom, how leaning into your core mission can strengthen customer loyalty, and how to effectively pivot without losing your identity or your shirt. Uh, But until then, uh, take care. We'll talk to you next time.